0: I don't know if a bolder word has been spoken about the importance of the transfiguration than what Sarah Hen- Henlicky e. Wilson, associate pastor of Tokyo Lutheran Church and the founder of Thorne, uh, Thornbush Press, offers when she writes this. Now, I can say with assurance that transfiguration is as important as the incarnation at Christmas and the resurrection at Easter. I bet you weren't imagining that as you heard this morning's scripture reading. The event that we just heard in Mark, and it also shows up in Matthew and Luke as well, that that would be as important as Easter, the resurrection, and the incarnation at Christmas. But that's what she says. It's bold, and she might be right, but I can't tell you if she is or not because her book comes out in August. It's a forthcoming book, so I'll have to read it and get back to you on that one. But is the transfiguration worth, worth all this kind of fuss? Is it worth going into all this, having this kind of looking at it? Is she, is she anywhere close to being right with her assessment there? Or are we placing our interest in a minor event that lies somewhere on the way toward those major happenings of the cross and the resurrection, that empty grave? Is it, is it really a, a big deal? Well, this gospel writer here in Mark is going to say, this is a big deal. Mark will agree with her, with Wilson's assessment here, and say it's a big deal. And here's why. Number one, we know it's a big deal because of where all this happens at. do you notice in verse 2, it said on a high mountain is the location for where this transfiguration happens. One needs only do a cursory read of the Old Testament to know that mountains have served as the setting of several significant God encounters, or what are called theophanies. So the reader is expecting something to happen big like that as they go up a, a mountain. But perhaps even more so is that word there, a high mountain. Now, that might actually hold something much bigger here in the background. Particularly as we think about Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, which says, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Note how Mark's gospel begins. If we go all the way back to the beginning of Mark's gospel, so we're in chapter 9. We go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news is how the gospel begins in Mark, of Jesus Christ. The high mountain here provides the Isaiah setting for heralding the good news and for announcing, as it points at Jesus, this is your god that's a big deal right and that's only one of five i've got four more big deals here that's just number one number two is this we know it's a big deal because of who shows up that elijah and moses in verse four or who shows up here reading that list of ancient uh, ancients who are commended for faith in hebrews 11 we might imagine any number of persons that could have shown up at this point Right? Just read through the Old Testament. You can name off a number of significant characters beyond Elijah and Moses here and say, hey, those people could show up and they would still be a, a big deal. But again, here in this text, it's important to note these are very specific folks who have been identified here. Very specific reason why they've shown up. In fact, they would mark what's called an eschatological uh, time of fulfillment. In time, something has come to fruition at this point. And so something is being declared huge here. Elijah, of course, according to the prophet Malachi, was going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. So Elijah shows up there. That's going to tell you something about the messianic aspects or things going on there with Jesus. And then, of course, Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, speaks of a coming prophet that the people need to listen to. They need to heed. The presence of these two on this mountain marks a ringing endorsement of who Jesus is and what God is up to. So that's the second big deal, how we know it's a big deal, who showed up. Now, just as a side note here, if you read the other two gospel accounts, Matthew and Luke, the order's reversed. It's Moses and Elijah. And you'd expect as much because it's kind of a historical order or the way that they appear in the scripture with that. Mark is drawing emphasis here to Elijah. It might be because of the chapter just before that and the conversation that surrounds that. It might also be this eschatological, this end times kind of stuff going on here. He wants to create an emphasis there. Well, number three, we know it's a big deal because of what goes down on the mountain. All right? Kind of an interesting use of words there. Usually go up on the mountain, but what's going down on the mountain? One, Jesus is transfigured. That makes it a big deal. Also, a cloud overshadows them, among other things. This overshadowing cloud is reminiscent of the ancient theophanies we read about in the Old Testament, signifying that when God shows up, a cloud descends, and there's God's real presence there uh, around them. You see this type of talk and this type of language around the tabernacle. You see that with uh, the people of God as God is in their presence, or they're in the presence of God around the mountain, wherever it might be. A cloud is associated there. And this language of transfiguration, the other gospel accounts, Matthew and Luke, Uh, They speak of Jesus' face taking on a different look. So if you read in Matthew, you'll see that his face shone like the sun. If you read in Luke, you'll hear that the appearance of his face changed. a much more muted, but there is a a change to his face. Mark doesn't offer us the facial details here. Doesn't give us that kind of intel. But he does say something about the clothing. He says it's dazzling bright. Otherworldly bright. Like you couldn't bleach clothing enough. Take the strongest bleach that we've got. It ain't going to do it, right? That's how dazzling, that's how bright this is. Well, the moment you start talking about clothing that's dazzling and bright, you start drawing on a whole host of Scripture references. References like Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, when it talks about the Ancient of Days, and it's specific about the clothing that's being worn there. Or maybe Ezekiel chapter 1, talk about the one who's seated on the throne or even psalm 104 verse 2 the one wrapped in light these are not minor league characters that are being drawn out here when we start talking about transformed clothing that's dazzling and bright we're now in the big leagues right and that's what mark wants us to see here with this transfiguration The fourth thing we know it's a big deal here is because of what gets said on the mountain. We know it's a big deal because of what's said. Though we certainly could add here that it's a big deal that something is actually being said and how it's being said, right? That's certainly going to be part of the big deal. A voice from the overshadowing cloud, right? That's theophany form there. But note what is said. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. These words, which sound similar, are very, very similar to the baptismal words that, that are said over Jesus. But they're meant to draw us to other texts. These words actually are a mashup of three verses. And so what the gospel writer's done is taken these three verses and they've, they've crunched them together so that when you hear them said, the mind's imagination explodes with the content that's been placed there previously. So if you think someone has been well versed in jewish scripture they'd instantly have categories in which they'd hear these activated and they say oh it's talking about this and it's talking about this and it's talking about that and these categories here when it says son we're talking psalm chapter two we're talking about the enthronement psalm of the messiah who's now king of the world when we talk about the one who's beloved we're talking about genesis chapter 22 verse 2 we're talking about the faithfulness, the faithful Israelite, the faithful son. And when we talk about the one that you should listen to, that's Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. And that's that word, again, that Moses gave about the prophet who would come, that you're to heed what they have to say. The earlier baptismal version includes a reference to Isaiah 42, 5, the one that says, in whom I'm well pleased. If you add that addition to it, it's clearly a word that's spoken to the Messiah, God's anointed here. If there was any confusion about who Jesus is, and if there was any confusion about what God is up to at this point, these words would make very clear what all this means and who we're looking at here. But yet there's one more thing for why this is a big deal here. We know it's a big deal because of when it all happens. It says in the text, six days later. Right? Six days later. That's how it begins. Our story begins. You start talking mountains. If you're talking about overshadowing clouds you talk about divine voices that are speaking out from those clouds you get into all those different categories you're already in the territory of a theophany i think that part is very clear already right we've made that one clear you're like jimmy it's clear but six days later is going to etch this in even more for us it's going to draw us even further into this this territory because if we read exodus chapter 24 verse 16 We'll hear this. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Again, you're transported back to that old story. So altogether, if we take these, we take these different things that say why this is a big deal, we realize that the question that's asked in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 before our text the chapter before in which jesus asked his disciples who do people say that i am it's going to be more than answered here with these big deals and peter's profession just two verses later from the question in verse in chapter 8 verse 29 would in fact be the right conclusion jesus is the messiah jesus is the christ it's what mark has set out for his gospel to say this is how we know that jesus is a christ this is what it looks like we've seen this story we've seen God revealed to us in Christ in this way, and here's how we know. We come to this moment, this grand moment, in which they get to see the veil taken back for a moment and say, yes, that is true. This stuff is true. Of course, there is that passage in 9, verse 1. One verse right before us in which Jesus says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Those some are the witnesses to transfiguration, the three that go up with them to the mountain. They see the power of God, the saving power of God in Jesus Christ in that moment, long before their own deaths. And what they witness here is what Ben Witherington identifies as the unveiling of the king. The kingdom is revealed by the unveiling of the king, is how he puts it. But why all of this now? Why here in this story, not just six days later, but why at this point in the story does this all happen? Why why happen to a limited audience? Why leave it to just these three witnesses to see all this stuff happening when a much larger audience will soon be available? That audience that will witness resurrection when they'll see the resurrected Christ. Why not have those flashes of transfiguration show up in the resurrected body of Christ? Why not have that happen then and there? Is this somehow... An example of biblical piling, like you had too many stories, and so you start piling them on. Got to find a spot for that one, right? Is that what's going on here? Absolutely not. The six days l- later reference in in verse two is not only a cue to the older Moses story, but it also serves to connect the event here to what surrounds it in the narrative. Mark doesn't use this type of time imagery or this framing of events. He doesn't do this type of thing where he says let's locate it within a certain specific this many days and so it's rare for his gospel to have that and so here the effect is that the reader would see what we have heard just prior to the account being connected to what we now see unfolding when read this way we encounter jesus telling his disciples and his followers about his coming suffering and rejection in chapter 8 verse 31 where he goes into saying he's even going to die and there's going to be a resurrection And of course that's disruptive and distressing talk you're following a a rabbi or a leader and they start telling you hey guys uh things are gonna get really rough here soon uh they're gonna they're gonna round me up and they're gonna they're gonna cause me to suffer in fact it's not just gonna be any kind of suffering they're gonna kill me and then i'm gonna come back to life and you're gonna say what what did i sign up for who is this guy who, has, who talks about stuff like that? Who says things like that? Of course, Peter isn't going to have any of it. You see in chapter 8, verse 32, he pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him. Of course, Jesus has to set him straight in verse 33. But then Jesus goes on to say this, and this is crucial for us to see the placement of the transfiguration at this point. It's in 834, just before we come up to chapter 9. If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross. If you showed up for that Bible study on that day with Jesus whoa right you'd stop eating your donut halfway through that you might close your Bible and walk out right what'd you just call me what I didn't come here to get a lecture that's hard teaching that's hard teaching but coupled with the events that will befall this band of ancient Jesus followers real events in history in which people scatter and run for their lives events when people are really, truly afraid, and the power of Rome comes down to crush you and looks to crush your movement. When that happens, when you're in the midst of that, that group is going to need more than just a teaching. They're going to need more than just words to hang their hat on. And so we see here, they need to catch a glimpse of something more. In this Markin transfiguration, we see that more, and it's what, that uh, James Edwards identifies in his commentary when he says, it's encouraging the disciples to believe and follow Jesus on the way to the cross. That Jesus is calling them to something more. That, of course, is a challenge in every generation of the church, to be people who go and take it to the distance, take it to the end. December twenty second, 1922 edition of the New York Times included a firsthand description of what would turn out to be one of the great archaeological discoveries of the 20th century where the writer boldly states this you don't hear newspaper articles or news lines written this way uh, these days so it'll sound a little strange no finer human interest story no more thrilling drama no greater archaeological revelations could be summoned from history or the most vivid imagination than is told by the mute objects in the in the tomb of king Tutankhamun right king Tut you've probably heard the stories you've probably seen the pictures You may have actually seen the artifacts themselves, uh, some of you here this morning. King Tut, that 14th century BCE ancient Egyptian pharaoh, also the subject of a Steve Martin song. But when archaeologist Howard Carter was first peering into the tomb, when he chiseled that little hole there and held a, a light up there to see what's in there, he's asked the question, can you see anything? And he famously remarks, yes, wonderful things. He sees wonderful things. Wonderful indeed. The chamber was full of all kinds of riches and historically significant objects. We would expect as much in the tomb of a king. But later researchers, particularly in our own day, would discover something rather surprising about this young king who died at about 19 years old. King Tut's left foot was severely deformed, he had what's called a club foot. What at first were believed to be symbols of his power, that being over a hundred walking sticks that were found in his tomb, are now believed to have been used to help the king to walk. That someone with such power would also have such an obvious weakness might leave some modern observers at this point confused. It might be why FDR dodged the cameras, right? There's a confusion there that confusion is not uncommon the same goes with glory and suffering those two don't seem like they could work together and peter like many jesus followers both ancient and modern he struggles to grasp the suffering jesus hence the chapter 8 rebuke just as much as he fails to comprehend the glorified jesus in chapter 9 when he talked about building tents when he should have been talking about building one throne Reflecting here on the illumined garments of the transfiguration, uh, returning back to Ben Witherington, he observes here that this idea of suffering exists at the same time to the glories here. He calls it ominous when he says this bright white apparel was also the garment, as we learn in Revelation, of martyrs. It's The same garment. God's gracious gift to these earliest Jesus followers was that they might see more so that they could be more. Such that years later, one of these folks would write in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, "...for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased." We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. David Garland observes, I think, what all of us know here in closing. Christians don't live on the mountain. We don't live on the mountain. But rather, down in the valley where confusion and mayhem reign. And where we must continue, and I like his phrase here, to joust with Satan. Continue to joust with Satan. Now you might be going, hey, Jimmy, I'm not into that devil personified evil kind of thing. But you do understand what it looks like to struggle. You do know what it looks like when you get that call at 3 a.m. That trouble has happened to a family member or a friend or you receive a diagnosis that's unsettling and troubling to you. Or to have worry for your children, or maybe for a niece or a nephew, or to be concerned about a job situation. You could have your life completely in order. Medical science can tell you that your body's in disorder. It can dash all of that. That's jousting with Satan. That's trying to hold it all together amidst the suffering and struggle of this life. And we haven't even got into the situation where we start talking about those. Who are persecuted for righteousness sake right those are just the everyday bumps and bruises cuts and scars so perhaps you know the feeling more than anyone of what it looks like to live in that valley but garland will go on to write this it says yet even in the midst of suffering god's presence shines through even in the midst of suffering god's presence shines through and it shines through for us in the transfiguration it shines for us in a moment that we can look back at that we can hearken to to say that there were witnesses the scripture talks about the importance of two to three witnesses so there's three witnesses who saw the glory of God shining through Jesus and it strengthened them for their day perhaps it might strengthen us for our day as well to really know who Jesus is so that we might live strengthened lives today may god give us as much vision with eyes of faith in the coming days and the coming season of lent even amidst the travails of our own generation that we might not be found ashamed but rather faithful to the end maybe so amen friends let's pray together lord we thank you for your great love this morning and that love finds expression not only in the words we hear but the events of Scripture themselves, We thank you, Lord, that this story that was captured so many years ago has been recorded and is renewing our own lives today, giving us a place of hopefulness, knowing that we have a source for help. So, Lord, as those who love and trust Jesus, those who put our life and stake the claim of our life on the very truth of who Jesus is, we pray, Lord, that you would give us those eyes, those fresh eyes, renewed eyes, renewed vision to see Christ, the real Christ. And Lord, for anyone who's here this morning that's in a place where knowing Jesus in this way would be a new, that would be a new adventure for them. Lord, we pray today that you'd give them eyes of faith as well. Lord, open their hearts and their eyes to see the one who loves them and has loved them throughout all time, even before They even knew what time was. So that together, Lord, we might rejoice with you and rejoice in you. And praise in Christ's name. Amen.